Oh, Father, we thank you this day for the immeasurable gift of the salvation of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you, Father, that in spite of our sin, of our wickedness, of our depravity, not uh, deserving a single iota of your favor, you saw fit for your glory and namesake to ransom for yourself a people to the praise of your great name by the price of your son's shed blood. And this gift, so rich, so powerful, so enduring, Lord, so glorious, cannot be calculated by any human measure. Lord, we receive Jesus Christ, and in so doing, receive eternal life. We receive the atonement for our sins, the promise of future resurrection, and the glorious joy of worshiping and serving you forever and ever. We thank you, Lord for all that the gospel has granted unto us, lowly people, wicked and lost, the greatness of your glorious kingdom. Lord, I pray this day, as these songs have proclaimed your majesty, that our minds, Lord, would be transformed by your holy word, that we would be in tune, Lord, more closely, more keenly with the power of your gospel that has transformed our lives for those that are in Christ this day. And as your word is proclaimed in the pages and the crescendo, the glorious proclamation of the book of Hebrews, I pray that your spirit would use its drawing force to pull from the miry clay of sin, professing believers who confess their sin and place faith in Jesus Christ, even this day, Lord. We thank you for the power of your spoken word, your word proclaimed, your word written. We thank you that it is recorded, Lord, for our benefit to show us Jesus Christ, and it gives you glory all the while as you ransom for yourself a people. Thank you for this time we have. Maximize it for your name's sake, we pray. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Praise God. This morning, what a joy and privilege it is to open the Scriptures together and to consider salvation. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bible to Hebrews 13. And we'll consider a portion of the last half, of the last chapter of this great book. There are likely two more messages in our Hebrews series in the months to come. For now, I want to focus today on a sort of doxology and benediction in two verses primarily. In Hebrews 13, these would be verses 20 and 21, where the author summarizes poetically and worshipfully the glories of the gospel. The title of this morning's message is The Eternal Covenant, which is a phrase taken from our text today. The aim of today's message is to identify and respond in worship to the central themes of the great book of Hebrews, to identify and to worship the Lord for the great themes of Hebrews, which center around the incarnate work of Jesus Christ, His superiority in His office, in His person, and in His accomplishments. Would you stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word with your Bible open to Hebrews 13 and let us behold the word of Christ together in verses 17 to the end of the chapter, verse 25. Here we have the holy word of Christ. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. 
Again, the primary, or the primary focus of this morning's message will center on verses 20 and 21. A doxology, that is a worshipful song or piece of poetry, but also a benediction, which is a prayer of blessing and farewell, if you will. Let's read those verses together again. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This, I submit, is a fitting conclusion to a paradigm-expounding expert treatise on the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It comes to us by way of benediction in Hebrews 13. This concluding prayer of blessings summarizes and proclaims central themes throughout this entire letter, you could also say sermon. Is Hebrews a letter or is Hebrews a sermon? The answer to both questions is yes. I submit there's exhortation and lengthy exposition on the Word of God itself from the Old Testament, and it ascribes these prophetic truths to the superior office of Jesus Christ revealed in time in the Incarnation, fulfilling the prophecies of old in His work on Calvary, and His death and resurrection, His ascension, and His continual intercession. And so in this way, Hebrews is a sermon, expounding and applying the prophetic message of the Old Testament Scriptures as it relates to Jesus Christ. But it is also a letter. It is a letter written with persons in mind, with an audience in mind, and with a particular context in mind. And we see this in the context today. The letter is applicable to leaders and our relationship to them, to the brothers who are in the faith, to the leaders and the saints who will hear it. It is a letter that comes with greetings from another church in Italy, from believers, we assume, in other lands that are encouraged by the testimony of this church and also want to exhort them to stay true to the faith. So in context of all of these, uh, these uh, goals, that Hebrews has in mind. May I submit that verses 20 and 21 are a great summary of the central themes of the book and are takeaway and are a takeaway message, if you will, of the entire context of the book of Hebrews. Compare these closing words in Hebrews 13, 17, or 20 and 21 to other examples, similar ones in the rest of Scripture. Turn with me to Romans 16, 25 through 27. Here we find the closing words of Hebrews are very similar to those authored by Paul at the end of his sermon epistle, if you will. So Romans 16. At the end of this great treatise, and that, again, another glorious treatise on the gospel, unparalleled in so many ways, Romans, the book of Romans, it closes with these words in verse 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of the faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. The similarity to Hebrews 13, 20 and 21 is striking. There are also examples of succinct and powerful gospel summaries earlier in the text of Hebrews as well. Consider a slightly expanded example. Again, these are parallel texts that emphasize to us central themes. We should train ourselves to recognize them as we're reading Scripture and highlight them as central to the understanding of the whole, hermeneutical keys, if you will, ways to understand the rest of the text. In Hebrews 10, 19, we have these words, Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest, great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and finally, let us, verse 24, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, 
not neglecting to meet together, together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Similar pattern in all three of these passages, gospel, glorious gospel proclamation and immediate gospel application. Because Christ is so great in His ministry, be encouraged and exhorted to walk in a manner worthy of the call, or to the obedience of the faith among the nations. Because Christ is a sufficient and superior high priest, therefore gather with anticipation and joy, and don't forsake the assembly of the beloved together. And then in our text today, where we are looking more closely at me, the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, and all that that entails according to the eternal covenant, let that equip you with every good thing that you may do His will, bringing glory to Christ's name all the while. So you see a pattern here. Here again we see in these examples the cause and effect relationship between the work of Jesus Christ and the life of the believer. What better subject for a prayer of blessing and farewell than the full scope of the sovereign work of our Lord Jesus Christ in His incarnate ministry to ransom and equip His bride for kingdom conquest and kingdom worship? We see the glories of the King expounded for the purpose of equipping the church for kingdom conquest, all the while giving Him maximal kingly worship. Here at our church at Providence, some years ago, we adapted a mission statement for the church from passages, benedictions like these that we've read this morning. The statement for our church's, church's purpose continues as follows, Providence exists to know the Word, to witness its power, to worship its author, and to walk in its ways through and for Jesus Christ. And that statement is just an adaptation of the basic structure of these passages that we read often at the benediction and closing of books. Remember the gospel and remember and walk in its ways or its effects. And thus we have a fitting close, do we not, to the book of Hebrews. Let's consider these two verses primarily and their context this morning under this heading, consummate elements of gospel benediction, or you could say powerful or important or central, superior elements of gospel benediction. Again, a benediction is a blessing and farewell, uh, important prayer. Consummate means central, primary, most important, consummate elements of gospel benediction, a great prayer. A summary of the gospel. What are the elements therein contained? Well, perhaps we can draw four of them beginning with P from these two verses today. First of all, proof. We have proof of the gospel offered in our text today. These two verses, Hebrews 13, 20, and 21. We also have the price that is proclaimed, the price of our salvation proclaimed. Also the product or byproduct, you could say, the effects of this work is referenced, and then finally, praise, worship of the Lord for all of these things. So let us consider this benediction a little more closely in Hebrews 13, 20, and 21 under these four main ideas. Proof, again in our text, Hebrews 13, 20, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's hard to know where to pause as we have a whole thought, a complete sentence there with a lot packed in. But let us pause on one of the initial clauses. Now may the God of peace who, and then brackets for this, or imagine brackets in your mind for the next phrase, brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. The God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. There is something uniquely proclaimed and displayed about the God of peace due to the fact that Christ was raised from the dead. In other words, you could say it this way. God proved Himself to be a God of peace upon the fulfillment of His plan or upon the execution of His decree to raise His Son from the dead. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it proved, it demonstrated, it certified that there would now be peace between God 
and man. This was a prophetic proclamation by the hosts of heaven. Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord of hosts. The children have been studying the names of God. My favorite illustration of Yahweh Sabaoth comes by two ways. It is the account of the birth of Jesus and also immortalized in the great, also in the, in the great hymn that we sing sometimes around Christmas time, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Jesus was Lord of hosts at his birth. His birth occasioned the testimony of the armies of heaven, the hosts of heaven, proclaiming something. Unto you this day is born a king, you'll find him uh, in a manger. But they also proclaimed that there would be peace on earth and goodwill among those with whom he is pleased. In other words, the arrival of Jesus Christ and his entire incarnate work would complete the ability or would certify the proof or would establish the terms whereby man in his sin, upon repentance and faith in the work of Jesus Christ, could have peace, reconciliation with God. Jesus' resurrection from the dead by God the Father was proof of the gospel. We see the immediate context around this verse in our chapter today, touching upon this as well. The resurrection as essential, as literal living proof of the certainty and sufficiency of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Consider those two words. Consider writing them down. Certainty and sufficiency. If Jesus, let me submit, if Jesus had not risen from the dead, there would not be certainty of our salvation. There would not be sufficient, a sufficient salvation. It would not be effective and it would not be certain. Those two words, efficacy and certainty, are associated with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and His atoning work. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there would not, in fact, He would not, in fact, be, according to verse 8, the following. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Think of it, saints. If Jesus Christ was killed, and if the grave could ultimately defeat Him, if Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity, could remain in the grave, then this would not be true. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But the resurrection certified that Jesus was who He said He was. Indeed, the eternal Son, the victor over the grave, the perfect sacrifice, sinless and sufficient, efficacious, effective, and certain was our salvation when we see that this was no mere man, but upon His resurrection of the dead, proven to be God in flesh, the immortal Son of God. The resurrection demonstrated that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In verse 14 of chapter 13, we have these words, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Well, that would be a foolish and absurd, futile fairy tale indeed, would it not, if Jesus had not risen from the dead. If Christ had not risen from the dead, there would be no lasting city. There would be no eternal life. There would be no passage from here to the next realm beyond the grave. There would be no life after this life, plagued with troubles, pains, hardships, and suffering such as it is. What does the book of Hebrews go on to say, or what has it said previously in its pages? That Jesus Christ, through His torn flesh, the veil of His torn flesh, made safe passage for those who are in Him to cross the line from this life into immortality. He is the one, the anchor of our soul, who has preceded us into the realms of glory. And the picture of the Holy of Holies is summoned as a picture of heaven to teach us this that no one is allowed into the holy place, into eternal life, into the heavenly realms without a high priest. Just as no one was allowed into the holy of holies except the high priest of old, no one is allowed into into the glory of glories of heaven uh, today except through the high priest, Jesus Christ. He is superior because He brings us with. He is superior because He is the effective sacrifice and mediator to allow a safe passage, he is superior for all these reasons. But all of this hinges upon his resurrection 
from the dead. If Jesus had not raised from the dead, we would seek the city to come in vain. Heaven would indeed be nothing more than a psychological crutch to deal with the reality of death. And for the unbeliever, let me submit to you that that is all that heaven is. If someone believes in heaven, oh, he's looking down on me, or um, I pray that you, know, you hear these sort of <clears throat> sentimental terms, you're not sure grounded in Christ as the atoning price to purchase you that kind of hope that are popular these days. People believe their pets go to heaven. People believe that everybody, by virtue of their own death, virtually goes to heaven. It seems like the sanctifying, atoning work that our nation trusts in is the funeral itself because somehow we convince ourselves that this person has passed from this realm into glory just by virtue of dying. But there is the death of only one that secures a certain and assured eternal life. And it is not our own death. It is the death of Jesus Christ. And without the death of Christ, there is no safe passage into glory. But because he rose again, we will rise with him. And heaven is for the believer an eternal destiny a literal reality, a hope for the future, certain and secure, not a mere psychological crutch to deal with the reality of death. This is the proof that is offered for us in the entire book of Hebrews that God is a God of peace and the gospel assures our ultimate salvation. Now, the greater context of the book of Hebrews emphasizes this as well. Turn to chapter 7 briefly and let us note how the work of Christ is certified upon His immortality, His resurrection, and without it, He would not be the high priest that He is. Hebrews 7.15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by what? The power of an indestructible life. Jesus Christ is a sufficient high priest because, in part, He is indestructible. Because He rose from the dead, He is the priest in the Melchizedekian order who can usher us into glory. Furthermore, it says, verse 23, the former high priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So because all the former priests, Aaron and all that followed in his lineage, were not immortal. They did not have the power of resurrection. They were not raised from the dead uh, prior to Christ, re resurrection from the dead. They, they were priests that were limited in their power. Their office was merely representative. But notice verse 24, by contrast. But he, of course, speaking of Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Jesus Christ's office of priesthood is permanent because of His resurrection. Furthermore, verse 25, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Because Christ rose from the dead, He is our forever intercessor. Because Christ rose from the dead, He can save us to the uttermost. Because He rose from the dead, His office continues permanently. Because of the power of His indestructible life, He is the salvation for all who will be reconciled to the God of peace. In our uh, country today, we find ourselves in a spiritual and cultural identity crisis. I mean, that is an understatement if there ever was one. I, you turn on the news, you follow you meet different media platforms and forums, and we don't know who we are as a people. We don't know what it means to be American. We don't know the ties that bind us. We have trouble with focusing on values because they seem to change every half hour. With the ticking of the second hand, it seems that the old milestones and reference points of morality, security, assurance, foundation, identity are thrown to the wind and new ones put in their place. We are a nation in confusion. We are lost and we are aimless, generally speaking. And we wonder where the foundation stones are. We try to erect new ones in their absence of the old that we have rejected in part of rebellion and for other reasons. Well, in times like these, people are scrambling for hope. They're scrambling for assurance and security. But the message of Hebrews is that is found only in one place. It is a faith that confesses the literal death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen to this world with discernment. You will find 
reasons maybe to be hopeful, but on closer analysis, you'll find it's a, short, it's, it's a short-sighted profession. There are popular movements to return to a cultural form of Christianity today that I have sensed in recent years and months. There is a growing sort of sentimental love loss for our Christian foundations, and there are even secular, unbelieving people who are looking to find what our forefathers might have had so they have reason to be secure. And for some of them, you can find that they will say things like they honor the message of Scripture. They uh, think there's value in what the Bible says. But it's important to recognize in all of these discussions that there is no ultimate hope, certainty, security, or efficacy in any confession, profession of Christianity without believing in the literal, the absolute, historical death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. Years ago, liberalism tried to reduce these things to a concept so that the academic world, uh, so that alliances could be formed with the demands of secular academia and the profession of the Orthodox Church. And in so doing, they left the Christian faith. With liberalism uh, came the notion that Christ died perhaps conceptually, but not necessarily literally. That is not the message of Scripture. Christ necessarily died literally, and without that, we are fools, without hope. And there is no faith, there is no gospel. Upon His resurrection is the proof of Christ's certain work on Calvary, established, certified. And you can read this again in other passages like 1 Corinthians 15. So take from Hebrews, take from these other passages a discerning source so that you know where to stand and... More than this, you can proclaim the ultimate hope to people who are lost and without God in the world. Proclaim the proof of salvation in the resurrection of Jesus, the actual event that took place in His perfect fullness of time. What is the second consummate element of gospel benediction that we see in our verses today? We've covered proof. Let's go to price. Verse 20, again, Hebrews 13, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. We'll put that clause, the great shepherd on the sheep, aside for another sermon. It's interesting in and of itself. But notice the next clause. By the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything, and thus follows the rest of the, of the benediction. So here we have a statement. By the blood of the eternal covenant, that indicates the price that was paid in order for the gospel to be a reality. The shed blood of Jesus was the effective price paid in order to ensure, to grant us access, entrance, membership into the eternal covenant. If we look at the immediate context here in this passage, we see in verses 10 through 13, some expounding on the circumstances surrounding the shedding of Christ's own blood. Notice the ultimate altar, the ultimate altar, if you will, and what is associated with it by gospel truth in these verses. 13.10, we have an altar. Let me pause for one moment. Who are we? Let me submit that, that the we, the first person there, collective, are those who are members of the eternal covenant. All who are members of the eternal covenant are members by virtue of the price paid by Jesus' blood upon the altar of Calvary. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Who are those who serve the tent? That speaks to the priesthood of the old order. The old altar were animals. Symbolic representations of sacrifice were offered at the tent of meeting, the tabernacle or the temple. These were insufficient. They did not grant communion rights to the adherents, or uh, that is the followers, who trusted in the priests to offer a sacrifice on their behalf, or the priests themselves. But we have an altar that is superior to this. Somehow, our sacrifice is different. And it provides for us communion, permission, entrance into a relationship with the Lord that was symbolized of old, but never satisfied in the blood of animals. Verse 11, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest, as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify His people, 
through His own blood. Therefore, let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach He endured. So here on the altar of Calvary, where Christ's blood was shed, the following is associated with, the blood, with His sacrifice. That is to say, Jesus' blood was the price by which the superior privilege of new covenant membership is secure. Jesus' blood is the necessary price, the sufficient cost, by which the superior privilege of new covenant membership is secure. If you enter at the door of Christ, or if you stand at the door of Christ's church, and you want to come in, uh, you can imagine uh, someone asking for license and registration. And your license and registration, as it were, your proof of membership in the body of Christ is that Christ's blood was shed for you. Your entry is secured when His blood is on the doorposts of your heart. So that's the picture there. And more than this, Jesus' blood is the cost. It's the final payment for our sin. Jesus' blood is the cost for our sin's debt to be satisfied. Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify His people. A price must be paid. As you know, if you're familiar with the gospel at all, for our sins to be washed away for the debt of God's justice that stood against us on account of our transgression of His holy law to be fully satisfied. So the altar that we come to provides the payment. Jesus' blood on that altar of Calvary provides a payment for our sin, so our sin's debt to be satisfied. The third, or the third thing, Jesus' blood is the cost whereby the holiness of His people was affected. We are sanctified, we are made holy. As we see in our text today, verse 21, that by the power of the blood of the eternal covenant, we are equipped with everything good that we may do His will working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. This speaks to sanctification, the ongoing purifying work of Christ's blood to change us from the inside out more and more into His image, reflecting more of our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, our boldness in the faith is justified. Christ's blood is a cost for us to be bold in the faith and to be uh, not fools, but to be wise in our boldness. For here, let us therefore go to him, verse 13, outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. We with boldness can endure the consequences of our faith with him. We can suffer the hatred of the world to be associated in the fellowship of Christ because we know with certainty that his shed blood purchased for us our safe passage into glory, even if they kill us. Our boldness, our confidence is justified on the price of Christ's blood. This is the eternal context, or the immediate context, if you will, that is in part in mind by the author when he writes that, by, that the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equips us with everything good that we may do His will. Now, the greater context of the role of Christ's blood as a sufficient price paid, is expounded at great depth in the book of Hebrews. We've covered these passages, but let me just remind you of one to add to the weight of this benediction that would be from Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9 expounds by the prophetic picture fulfilled in Christ the role of blood and covenant. The role of blood and covenant. Um, Hebrews 9, 7. But into the second... That is, uh, only the high priest goes. Into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood. So this, of course, speaks to the holiest place in the temple, or tabernacle. So he goes, but not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Verse 8, by this the Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, 
regulations for the body imposed, notice this phrase, until the time of reformation. What is the time of reformation? Our author continues to expound verse 11. But when Christ appeared. So the time of reformation is a time of a reconstitution or a constitution of a new covenant, the eternal covenant, whereby a superior circumstance was purchased by Christ's offering that now will secure superior fellowship for us. When Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, verse 12, He entered once for all into the holy places, and then listen, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And our author goes on to expound the role of blood in the covenant. So Christ, great summary statement, by means of His own blood, secured for us an eternal redemption. And this is, of course, what He has in mind in His closing words and benediction when He says, Our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Today, this morning later, we have before us the communion elements. I ask the children in my family often, and I'll ask all the children in here today, what does the bread remind us of? Kids, what does the bread remind us of? God, that's correct. Jesus' body, very good. Uh, kids in the room, answer this question for me. What does the juice remind us of? His blood, very good. His blood is represented by the cup. His broken body is represented by the bread. Now, the significance of these elements are meant to sear onto our consciousness, are meant to uh, burn into our soul, to write indelibly on the tables of our heart the role of Christ's blood in the covenant. Think of that as we partake later in this meal today. Third consummate element of gospel benediction, product. Talked about proof, price, and now product. You could say byproduct, consequences, the effects. Notice this phrase, equip you with everything good. Verse 21, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. There is a necessary effect and there's discernible fruit that abounds increasingly so in the life of a believer once he has come to a life-transforming, heart-resurrecting knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Hebrews, like so many books of the Bible, closes making a shift to these applications. You remember the structure of Ephesians. Ephesians opens with, and I think the ESV counts, something like a 283-word sentence expounding the predestinating glory of our almighty God who in His foreknowledge preordained our salvation, supplying as price for our adoption, Jesus Christ is our sacrifice. It goes on and on. And then later in the text, you get to about chapter 3, as I recall. And the message is, therefore, so in light of the beauty, the glory, the power, the amazing, staggering, awesome reality, that 283-word sentence, Live in light of the truth. Walk in a manner worthy of your call. We read the closing benediction of the book of Romans. The message is the same. Romans opens and closes with a purpose statement. The obedience of the faith among the nations. The consequences of the gospel. The byproduct, the fruit, the effect. These are what follows the proclamation of the same in each case. And here it is again in Hebrews. How should the knowledge of Christ's blood as the eternal price paid to secure our eternal membership in the great covenant. He as our great shepherd leading us into still waters, green pastures of eternal bliss by the power of the God of peace who raised him from the dead. How should we respond to this great message? Well, we should take from the proclamation of the scriptures equipping that we might endeavor to take ground for the kingdom of God, kingdom conquest, and kingdom worship. In the context of Hebrews 13, there are some examples of how we might walk in this way. Hebrews 13.1, you remember these, let brotherly love continue. 
Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. I have a confession to make, and I'm putting myself on record for accountability with this illustration. On either side of me, our next door neighbors on either side of our house have moved, one has moved in recently, one has been there for a while. As of yet, I have not gone to introduce myself to either neighbor. I have plans to do so, but I ought to be convicted to walk over there already and say, hello, my name is Ken, I'm your next door neighbor. Would you like to come over for a meal? Of course, I have to clear that with my wife first. I'm sure she'll be okay. She always does most of the work. Sometimes I try to clean the house and make it a little presentable. I always feel like I'm offering things that my wife has to pay for with her gift of hospitality. Nevertheless, that is just a simple application that I need to commit to, to let brotherly love continue and to not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. When we do something simple like inviting our neighbors over to eat, we are embracing the equipping power of the gospel to cause us to walk according to His will in a way that is pleasing in His sight. We are showing gratitude, gratefulness, according to Hebrews 12, 28. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. We are offering grateful, reverent, awesome worship, acceptable to His name, when we, in the spirit of the love of Jesus Christ, invite our neighbors over to eat. Uh, Oftentimes, messages sound so deep and so profound, and they are, in fact, immeasurably deep. The implications and and the power of the gospel, and systematic theology. But when it comes to walking these things out, often the application is so simple, and we should take encouragement from that. Simply being a friendly person and sharing some of the resources God has blessed us with, with our neighbors, can be a way of walking according to His will, a way that is pleasing in His sight. It goes on, verse 3, Remember those who are in prison as those in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. So we can be mindful of those. We've remarked in men's group of late to reminders. Some of the brothers were giving us reminders to pray for the persecuted church. To be mindful of those who are in chains. To consider ourselves in communion with those who suffer for Christ's name. If a family member of ours is suffering, it pains us. And so it is in the body of Christ. Family members of ours are suffering for Christ's name. Part of walking in a way that's pleasing to Him can be as simple as praying for the persecuted church, doing what we can to stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters who are behind bars or at death's door on account of their confession. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, love your husbands. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Uh, Husbands, you could commit to uh, kissing your wife goodbye every day before you leave for work. That's a simple thing, is it not? It's a reminder in the morning of your covenanted commitment to your bride as you go forth, and it will help you. It's perhaps a simple thing that would help you to be mindful that you are also a bride. You are the bride of Christ, and your call is to faithfulness to your groom. Faithfulness to your groom is the bride of Christ. Saints and members of the household of God can be as simple as, applied as simply as loving your wife, loving your husband loving your children, being faithful and committed to them, honoring them, having, maintaining the exclusive and particular uh, uh, honor and faithfulness to them in the covenant bonds of marriage. It goes on, verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, <clears throat> not fretting too much about finances. Loving the Lord in spite of the poverty, relatively speaking, we sometimes feel like we uh, enjoy Enjoy is a loaded term or suffer in this life. Of course, on balance and in perspective, we are historically more rich than we could possibly imagine, but that only makes uh, the point of the author of Hebrews even more stark. We ought to not love money or show that we are anxious by its amount in our pocket or not in our pocket, but be content with what we have and what God has given. And in this way, we are living in light of the gospel And of course, it goes on to assure us or to exhort us toward confidence and to remember our commitment to the body of Christ, even our leaders who spoke to us the Word of God. Next message will focus some on the structure of relationships within the body of Christ from our passages. So we'll pause on the remarks towards leaders at this time. But this gives you something of an idea. 
in the greater context of Hebrews, we won't turn there this morning, but note chapter 10, 32 through 36. Uh, the author of Hebrews exhorts the people to remember their former days when they were walking in good examples of equipping, of gospel equipping, walking in a way that was pleasing in his sight, letting the effects of the gospel work through them in a way that brought glory to the Lord, showing their gratefulness, reverence, and awe for receiving the promise of a kingdom that cannot be shaken, shaken offering to the, to the Lord acceptable worship. This brings up our final point this morning. Acceptable worship is a theme in Hebrews that closes the book as well as opens the book. It is a consummate element of gospel benediction, not just proof, not just the price, not just the product, but the praise that our Lord deserves on account of all these things. Again, our text today, verse 21, closes with this phrase, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. To whom, to Christ, be glory forever and ever, amen. You are familiar with the chief end of man as the confession has it, are you not? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It's a summary statement, that catechism question, that takes in view messages or takes in view summaries like this from Hebrews. That all of the book of Hebrews, what it has spoken and the way it ought to compel us to live should be done in light of the glory of Christ. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. The glory of Christ is expounded in the immediate context. We see in chapter 12, verse 28, for instance, an appropriate response to the revelation of this entire gospel, um, as we have read already, but at the close of his book, as the author is wrapping up his points, he expounds great things like this phrase, yet once more, this is Hebrews 12, 27, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And then that verse we've referenced already a couple times, verse 28, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. This is what we do when we gather on the Lord's Day. This is what we do when we lead our families in worship in the evenings or whenever you gather. This is what we do with psalms, hymns, praise that we offer to the Lord. As we sing our hallelujahs to His name, we are exalting Him for His great work on Calvary. Turn to the beginning of Hebrews. We find that this glory of Christ and the theme of worship are bookends. They open and close the entire corpus of the book of Hebrews. Listen to these lofty phrases, these glorious proclamations, these peerless accolades that the author ascribes to our King of kings and Lord of lords. He says, verse 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And now He is going to expound the glories of the Son, whom He appointed, verse 2, the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sin, purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Our author envisions Christ in all His glorious splendor, having reclaimed His pre-incarnate glory after ascending to the Father, sitting at His right hand, too bright to look at. The fullness of what the disciples glimpsed at the Mount of Transfiguration, now the eternal reality of the exalted Son, reverently displayed in all His magnificent glory at the right hand of the Father, ruling, reigning as judge, as king, as prophet, priest, interceding for you and for me, executing in the fullness of time as the course of history goes along according to God's sovereign linear progression, each and every detail according to His decree. This is where we see our Lord and Savior pictured in the opening of Hebrews. Having become, it says, verse 4, as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Christ is more glorious than all the angels. Any heavenly circumstance, any heavenly future, reality in glory, any being created, any glorious piece of creation 
or a vast expanse of the cosmos you could could possibly imagine, Christ is superior to all of these. Their author continues to make his point by citing seven citations from the Old Testament and asking rhetorically, to which of the angels, the greatest conceivable celestial being under Jesus Christ, did God ever say the following, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Christ Jesus is in a class all by himself. Just to press you with my minuscule Latin, you could say he's sui generis. I think that's how you say it. It's Latin for in a class all by itself. Isn't that cool? I think we're coming to the close of this message. And in so doing, we're getting closer to the close of our study of Hebrews. But I want to emphasize that this book closes with its primary theme, the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord. That was emphasized at the beginning. It was demonstrated through the middle, and it is the exclamation point at the end. Let me read our text again. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us transition in prayer. O Lord, we are so thankful for the proclamation of your word, for the demonstration of your glory, for expounding all of these details and fascinating truths prophetically declared and fulfilled in time of the great gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, I pray that we would see the proof and believe with all our heart the literal truth of the gospel recorded for us in the course of history where the satisfaction of terms and conditions of peace with God were absolutely established in Christ. Lord, let us cling to this living proof, Christ raised from the dead. Let us value above all things else the price that was paid to secure our eternal hope, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Let us walk in a manner, Lord, consistent with this understanding equipped with everything good for every good work that you have called us to. And let us do all of this to the praise of your great name. As we partake in this meal today at your table, I pray we would do so with hearts ablaze with the truth of your shed blood and broken body, purchasing for us assurance of our salvation and entrance into communion with you. Lord, write these things deep within us that we may not forget in the hour of our trial, in times of great distress, that we would cling to Christ, the anchor of our soul, fixed beyond the grave into heavenly glory, that we may follow Him through His torn flesh, as it were, into realms eternal, because He died and rose again and ever lives to intercede for us. In His name, the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.